and welcome to the show. This is episode number 53 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Monty Python's Life of Brian on your He's Not the Messiah, He's a Very Naughty Boy podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. It's been a long time since we talked about the Holy Grail, so it's probably worth reminding everyone how come you've not seen some of these comedy classics? Um, mostly because I didn't want to. <laughs> Um, Life of Brian is actually one that I wasn't familiar with until probably the last year or so, and I had never watched The Holy Grail before that because I had tried to watch it by myself, and it's not something that really lends itself to watching alone. You kind of need that group energy for the comedy, I think. Um, And then we started talking about The Life of Brian when we did The Holy Grail, and I agreed to give it a shot, so I've watched it now. Okay, <laughs> that is a very neutral <laughs> description overview. Um, <laughs> before the conversation, I'll give everyone a bit of history on this. Monty Python's Life of Brian is a 1979 religious satire comedy developed by the Monty Python troupe of John Cleese, Eric Idle, Graham Chapman, Terry Jones, Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin. It follows the huge success of their previous film, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This film is notorious for its depiction of organised religion and the reactions of the followers of the religion. The Python team were very clear that Jesus himself is not mocked or derided and he's always portrayed seriously in the film. Many religious groups reacted to the film's development and release uh, very badly. It was banned by many local authorities in England. There were leaflet campaigns that urged people not to see it in areas where it was shown. And it was banned outright across Ireland and Norway. It was then marketed in Sweden as the film So Funny, It's Been Banned in Norway. (laughs) Which I love. That's wonderful. (laughs) That is pretty great. Michael Palin and John Cleese went on a BBC chat show to debate the film with Michael Muggeridge, a journalist, and Mervyn Stockwood, the then Bishop of Southwark. We will link to this debate because it is fascinating. It's about three quarters of an hour long, um, but it's the there's a perceived role reversal. The, the two Pythons, they're trying to make logical, well-reasoned arguments, but these two intellectuals, you might say, are, are just firing barbs and insults back at them. Uh, And it's very awkward and very clumsy in a lot of ways. The Life of Brian was funded by George Harrison, formerly one of the Beatles, after the original funders, EMI, dropped out when the subject matter worried them. It is now often considered one of the greatest comedy films of all time. It appeared third after Airplane and This Is Spinal Tap on Time Out's Top 100. Wasn't The Holy Grail also funded by one of the Beatles? Uh, Not the Beatles... Uh, Led Zeppelin, maybe members of Genesis. Oh, I think that's there was right. another okay. band as well. It, uh, again, it was the the tax rates for the highest earners were very high in the, in the UK at that time. They were like right. eighty or ninety percent. So this was a sensible thing to do. The the thing that they say about George Harrison is he funded this because he wanted to see the movie. I, I think Eric Idle described it as the world's most expensive cinema ticket. <laughs> that's great. Mm. Honestly. So The Life of Brian is about Brian of Nazareth, who was born in a manger next to Jesus and is mistaken for a messiah at one point in his struggles against the Romans. Okay, that's pretty accurate. (laughs) (laughs) He is not Jesus. Jesus is not part of this film. It is about the other goings on in that world at that time. (laughs) He was in it once. Yes. Yeah, he gives the Beatitudes the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the cheesemakers. What's so special about the cheesemakers? 
See, and that's the point we'll get into the discussion in a minute. <laughs> Mandy, how did you watch this film? Oh, goodness. Thankfully, I found this one on YouTube, just like I did The Holy Grail. And so I did not have to pay to watch this movie. It's not anywhere. Really strange, because I looked for it on, on any channel or any streaming, but... Yeah, I was actually getting worried looking for it because it's not on Netflix. It's not available on Amazon. I mean, I could have ordered the DVD and had the DVD sent to me, mm. um, but it, it's not anywhere. And then I was like, well, you know what? The Holy Grail was on YouTube. Let me check there. And I happened to find it and it was great. <laughs> nice. Uh, I watched it on DVD in the end. I was hoping it would be on did. Sky or something, but fine. <laughs> Just because it's so hard to open a DVD case and get up and put it in and then go back and sit down right right life is well, just so hard when you have to do that dvds aren't high quality enough frankly <laughs> um right what were your expectations for the film uh my expectations were not high uh coming out of the holy grail i really didn't expect to like anything else that monty python did just because i think i don't get the humor and I did go into it trying to have an open mind because several people said that they thought I might enjoy this one more. And so I I was trying to go into it hoping that would be the case. Okay. <laughs> now, is this the point we say on Twitter? You're like, why am I doing this to myself? I'm watching this damn film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say you went into it with a positive mind. <laughs> um. Well, more positive than it could have been. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, because so many people did say that Life of Brian has more of a plot than mm-hmm. the Holy Grail does. Hmm. And that was something that I had issues with, with the Holy Grail. And so I thought, okay, this may be different enough and, and actually tell a story that I could get behind. And I am familiar with the song at the end, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. And I really like that song. And so I, I did have hope that, that there would be something enjoyable about it. Okay. I did. I really did. I'm not just saying that. Okay. So you were hoping there was something there. Did you enjoy it in the end? Oh, God, no. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I honestly didn't think it was possible for me to hate a movie more than I hated the Holy Grail. And then I watched Life of Brian. <laughs> So this is, you would rather, if I sat you down, like, you have to watch one of these two films, you'd watch Holy Grail again. Yes, I would. (laughs) Is is that the effect of having recorded about it and having done the podcast? You sort of have that extra textual appreciation for it? Maybe. Um, I mean, the Holy Grail at least did have that first 22 minutes that I laughed at. Okay. (laughs) there, There was nothing funny to me in Life of Brian. Nothing. 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 You heard it, folks. Nothing. I shall now spend 40 minutes disproving that fact. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I will laugh at you laughing at Life of Brian, but that doesn't mean I'm laughing at Life of Brian. Okay. So one of the things I want to talk about was I I have a a big appreciation for this film because it does so much, uh, such a high variety of comedy. There's, there's that debate that I just referenced. It, it, they, they throw these things at the Pythons about, oh, you're just using nudity and four-letter words to get a cheap laugh out of Jesus. Ugh, it's so low. No one's going to remember this film. All of this kind of thing. 
and and yes, there there are there is some of that in there. There is John Cleese getting angry and shouting and swearing at people to the extent they even dub the four letter word beginning with C at one point um, to a different word. You cats! Because yes, that would have absolutely distracted from that moment in the film. Right. But they also have uh, jokes about uh, the, the the grammar of Latin. Aunt, what is aunt? Go. They have jokes uh, where they're doing what did the Romans do actually do for us. Yeah, all right, I'll grant you the aqueduct, the sanitation, the two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without saying, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct, and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Yeah. Education. Yeah, 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 all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's something yeah. we've really misrated. The Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly like to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, the fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? They have the satire of the followers. Speak, speak to us, Master, speak to us. Go away! They have the surrealism of the chap who was lost, who has not spoken for eighteen years, and is suddenly leaping about everywhere. They have the um, again, it's kind of satire, but the the ex leper who's healed, but it means he now doesn't have a livelihood. Did you say ex leper? That's right, sir. Sixteen years behind a bell, I'm proud of it, sir. Well, what happened? Oh, cured, sir. Cured? Yes, some bloody miracle, sir. God bless you. Well, who cured you? Jesus did, sir. I was hopping along, minding my own business. All of a sudden, up he comes, cures me. One minute I'm a leper with a trade, next minute my livelihood's gone. Not so much as a by your leave. You're cured, mate. Bloody do gooder. Well, why don't you go and tell him that you want to be a leper again? Oh, I could do that, sir, yeah. Yeah, I could do that, I suppose. What I was thinking, I was going to ask him if he'd make me a bit lame in one leg during the middle of the week. You know, something beggable, but not leprosy, which is a pain in the ass. to be blunt, excuse my French, sir, but... There's a lot of comedy going on that is on... A lot of different levels. So I'm surprised that you're saying none of it landed for you. Okay, I'm going to take it back. (laughs) Note the time, three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) The the Latin grammar bit did make me chuckle. I was amused at that. Um, And then watching him do it a hundred times in the 10 foot tall letters and all of that, that that did make me laugh. I was wrong. You were right. There was one thing that made me laugh. (laughs) I did quite enjoy that. But nothing else? I don't think so. I'm trying to think what else would have made me laugh. I didn't find Caesar's speech impediment funny. Um, I didn't find the the guy who had been silent for 18 years and then had to talk funny. I, uh, I didn't find the, you know, blessed is his gourd funny. 
Yeah, there's not much okay. else. I didn't find the aliens funny. No, they are just surreal. And yeah, it does have this element of surrealism in it of, well, that's a bit weird. And then it's not mentioned for the rest of the film. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and some of this, I, th- I think a lot of this conversation is, is about the fact that comedy is often of its time. And then that comedy becomes actually very ordinary and and people build on it. This film was two years after Star Wars. It was the year that Moonraker and Star Trek The Motion Picture and Battlestar Galactica and various other things were coming out. All the studios were catching up. Like, a sci-fi film's been successful. Quick, make lots of sci-fi films. So this was them doing a, well, if you want sci-fi in your film, we'll give you a bit of sci-fi in your film. (laughs) And just the (laughs) cheapest looking bit of sci-fi you could ever do with motorbike sound effects. And and then, yeah, he's... Caught and crashes in the same place in Jerusalem. And it's not commented on by anyone. Right. It's just in there because it might make some people laugh. And probably at the time it did. I actually, I had to rewind it. Because I was like, what just happened? (laughs) And I rewatched it again. And I was like, I don't understand what's happening right now. Yeah. And and if if bits of it like that don't work for you, you can just ignore them. The film is not hinged on any one aspect of it. Okay. Well, that's true. That's true. Mm. Now the... The thing that I think I, I want to talk about the most is mm. I had no idea how not kid-friendly this movie was because so many people have talked to me about how they watched it when they were a kid. And even, like, we do the song in, in Sunday Assembly, and so we were talking about the movie, and we have a, a 14-year-old in our band who's so they were singing the song with us and their dad was telling us that they had shown the movie to their kids. And and so I'm expecting this to be just a, you know, a regular movie that is not going to have full frontal nudity <laughs> and all of these swear words and, and things like that. And so I was very, very shocked watching this movie at some of what was in the movie. Okay. See, 14 is about the right age for it, I think. Well, but they were younger than 14 when they first saw okay. it. And, yeah, and I know the, some of our commenters were, you know, like 9, 10, 12. Yeah, some people did say they, they were too young for it. I don't know. I, I think teens is about right. I don't think there's anything in this film that is, oh my word, think of the children. They can't see that. But there are things that would be a bit excessive or even too nuanced for children i mean people having a happy clappy time at crucifixion yes i can see the complaints about that because we think of crucifixion as the thing that happened to jesus but it was a roman torture right and that was how they killed people so you do need to sort of accept some of the um juxtaposition of the the comedy to the seriousness of the situation it's not even so much the comedy that was surprising to me it was I think the first thing that that caught my attention was when Brian's mother was telling him that his father was a Roman because there's a Roman in their house. Mm -hmm. And then Brian leaves and it lingers on the mother and (laughs) the Roman and she gets on her knees and then it cuts away. (laughs) It's like, what just happened here? Why? Why? What? Why? Well, and even the, the, the line before that. You mean you were raped? Oh, at first, yes. Right. That is right. That is very definitely a line of its time. I don't think you'd go that way this now. 
No. Oh, absolutely not now. But it's interesting, though, because that line didn't affect me quite the same. I mm-hmm. was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, maybe I just expected that from this sort of crude humor. I don't know. Very strange. Okay. No, Monty Python is not for children. That's for sure. Kids, if we're talking into their teens, yeah. There is enough here for the, that is enjoyable for, uh, yeah, for that sort of age. Okay. Hmm. I, I wouldn't expect anyone to think that Monty Python is a children's thing. Well, I don't know that I thought it was for children, but because so many people have said they watched it as children, I expected it to be not quite as adult. Okay. If that makes sense. Okay. So one of the big discussions, as I said at the beginning, is about the the content, the satire um, of this. Did it have any impact on you in the way that it portrays religion, the way it portrays Jesus, the jokes they're doing about it? What are your thoughts on that? I think I was actually surprised by how little this was about religion. Mm-hmm. Really? Um, and so I didn't... I didn't see anything that I would have ever considered blasphemous or mocking religion. I mean, there, there were the bits, of course, where Brian was mistaken as the Messiah. And and so then there was that cult following of him. But that was a small portion of the film towards the end. And so for most of it, I was actually wondering, what is the plot of this movie actually supposed to be? Hmm. And and so I okay. didn't I didn't really see anything that was anti-religious or that was super I don't know I guess blasphemous is the, is the word but um I I didn't see anything that was offensive in that way. Mm-hmm. Does any of that come from other things like this that you've watched or your own thinkings on religion? I don't- I don't think I've ever watched anything else like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's definitely not that. It could be from my own thoughts from religion. Um, my opinions on a religion have changed a lot over the years. And so I can't I can't say that had I watched this 20 years ago, I would feel the same way about it. You know, 20 years ago, maybe I would have been offended. Mm. But but right now, I look at it from a very logical perspective and, and see it sort of from the perspective you know that you had said that the the cast um had said where they were very clear that Jesus is not mocked you know mm-hmm. and it's it's not the real religion of christianity is not mocked or belittled or derided in this movie and so i don't see anything that is offensive about it i yeah. think what they did was they made up their own thing, and they went with it. Now, did you know any of this was in the film? I know, I know we asked about expectations of the film in general, but but your knowledge of the film beforehand, did you expect it to, to lampoon religion or Jesus even more than it did? No, all I knew about the film was that it was about this dude named Brian who was born at the same time as Jesus. And so okay. it follows the life of Brian while Jesus was out doing his thing. Honestly, I expected it to have more Jesus in it. Hmm. You know, I expected it to be seeing like some sort of comedic reaction to Jesus. 
And then that's not what it was, yeah. which, you know, very intentionally, that's not what it was, but that's what I expected it to be based on how people have described it to me. Mm-hmm. And and they do talk about the, that was almost the starting point of it, that this was Brian of Nazareth. Uh, he was, I think they even had a bit where he was a 13th disciple and it was try, things like trying to book dinner for the Last Supper for 12 people at the last minute. And the, the trouble of, of you know getting a table for that many people in a restaurant, or um, Jesus complaining about the construction quality of his cross, given that he's a trained carpenter, things like that. <laughs> Which and there is there are easy jokes to do on them, but the jokes of, well, Jesus, he said everyone should love each other. That's ridiculous, isn't it? it it's very hard to actually mock what are very sensible and good things to be saying. Right. The main reason I asked you about your what you knew beforehand is, is that is kind of what the reaction was at the time. I, I've seen it described elsewhere as internalized censorship, that there was this thing in the establishment of, oh my word, you do not mock Christians, Christ, anything about, you know, largely the most significant events of that religion. You just don't go near them. So the idea that there was anything in here that could mock them is actually what stirred people up more so than the content of the film. Right. Because people expected it to be that and so that's what they were upset about. Yeah, exactly. And uh, okay. the content of the film is, yeah, it's quite good fun, but it's not like it's really hard or sharp humour that, that you might get in some films, uh, what am I thinking, Four Crows, is it called? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Uh, other films, uh, almost of this ilk now, but but they'd be cutting their targets a lot harder. This is just a slightly surreal take on other events at that time. But there is all this furor, and, and famous furor about it because of the way that um, everyone reacted to it. And arguably made it more successful because there was uproar over it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Hmm. So in in the making of this film, we've got the uh, the the Monty Python troupe, as I said, and they play the majority of the parts. Uh, I think you you didn't even notice it too much in Holy Grail. Did you notice it here at all? I did notice it, mm. um, particularly John Cleese. <laughs> okay, um, but it didn't cause any issues. Like I was able to keep the characters very separate because. I mean, they all dressed very differently, and it was mm. clear when one was a Roman and, and one was from the People's Front of Judea or whatever, <laughs> yeah, whichever yeah. one of those uh, groups it was. Um, the only time that it caused me confusion was at the very, very end, because it was the same guy who played the the fake Brian, the one that they released. Mm-hmm. Um, was the same oh, yeah. guy who was immediately back up on the cross and sang the song. <laughs> yeah. And so that was confusing slightly because I was like, but he, he's the same, but he's gone and now he's back. And yeah, that that was the only time that it, you know, kind of gave me a, a hiccup. Hmm. But the rest of it, it was just very normal. Yes. I feel like normal is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Yeah, no, Absolutely. I find it quite funny because Michael Palin has a huge amount of roles in this film. I don't know whether he did less writing or he was the one who, I don't know, didn't have a family or another job or something at the time. 
But it does kind of go from scene to scene to scene for the probably the second half of the film was just him in different parts at every stage. It's it's it never catches me out because, like you say, they they dress differently and they look differently and act differently. But it's oh, that's Michael Palin doing that part. That's Michael Palin doing that part. <laughs> <laughs> I like it because he's so uh, obvious and upfront when he's Pontius Pilate, and then suddenly he's always the guy taking the cross off the the guy in the cross troop and so on yeah yeah Mm. he did it well i i mean i i can say that about it because you forget it's the same guy yeah because he does portray each character differently and the way you would expect the character to be and so he he did a really good job and they uh, they all do He's the one that I noticed, in the same way that I don't notice Terry Gilliam, because he's only got, like, two roles in this film. He is oddly not in this film. Um, whether he was off directing Jabberwocky or Brazil or something at the time. Oh, maybe Time Bandits. <laughs> but, yeah, John Cleese is very obvious as well. And John Cleese as the Centurion is excellent. Very hard, very in-charge sort of person. Right. Mm. That That role works for him. The leader of the People's Front, less so, because that is just a shouty part for him. <laughs> yeah, John John Cleese is the only one whose face I actually recognize on sight. Right. Okay. The other ones, I like, I recognized. Oh, that's the same guy playing all of these people, but I don't don't know their names. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm not the, British. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no. Um. So for my generation, they're all known for slightly different things. John Cleese, arguably for Forty Towers, but he has—he's the one who's done a lot. Um, Eric Idle for these sorts of parts in random films, but also doing songs. Michael Palin did a number of travel series. He did a series around the world in eighty days, uh, which was fabulous. That he was really good in. So they all have different careers post Python. They've become famous for, um, but people of okay. certainly like at parents' generation, this is one of their their big things. There was an interesting thing I read that this was one of the best periods of them writing together because they went away to the Caribbean to write the film and then they went and filmed in these nice hot uh, countries where they got to wear nice loose-fitting costumes and the the two Terrys who directed Holy Grail, only one of them directed this so they didn't have the falling out that they had last time. Um, okay. Graham Chapman wanted to play Brian. So did John Cleese, but they all said Graham will be better at this. But Graham Chapman was suffering from heavy alcoholism, but he actually cleaned up and dried up for this film to the extent he became the on-set doctor because he had this medical training as well. Like, this was clearly a a high point of them recording together, which is almost the antithesis of what you normally hear. Normally it's when they're struggling with alcohol and feuding and there's all these problems that they're also creating great works. Right. Hmm. I wonder if I would have appreciated this more if I had been able to watch it with you or with with someone else who really appreciates it rather than just sitting in the living room by myself. Having been told you'll hate it (laughs) and expecting to hate it. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, because listening to you talk about it, it it sounds interesting and it sounds good and it sounds like, oh, I should have paid more attention to this bit or that bit. And it makes me want to like it. But watching it by myself just didn't work out that way. Okay. 
So we had some great feedback from people. We called out to ask uh, if other people consider this blasphemous, what their reaction to it was when they saw it. Um, Abby, at this A.E. Shaw, said that she saw it when she was about nine. Uh, I was always most interested in the idea of George Harrison funding it and that everyone made such a fuss. I didn't enjoy it as much as Flying Circus, but thought it had disruptive conversational merit. Nine years old is entirely too young to watch this movie. Yeah, I think so. Possibly. Maybe. <laughs> Abby, I'm not judging your parents. I'm just disappointed. No. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's exactly bang on. Disruptive conversational merit. Yes, this this in, engaged a conversation about art and media and comedy and what you can and can't do. Possibly showing up the establishment a bit much. I say that the fact that this... Uh, chat show which was not a famous chat show at all like this event with life of brian is arguably the thing it's most famous for but you have these two very stuffy old chaps come on who just want to give a sermon about why this is terrible and why people shouldn't do it we heard from six-legged knits who said i've only seen it once when i was about 12 which was frankly too young for a few bits we know we know go and have a word with abby <laughs> but the bits I remember I enjoyed and wouldn't call blasphemous. It, it quite interesting. So I, I've been using the word blasphemous all the way through this and I used it on Twitter um, because part of the conversation is that it was called blasphemy. It is mocking Jesus and God. And it's not. It, it is mocking religion, organized religion, the way that followers behave, the way that people take an idea and mutate it into something that suits them or fits what they think they want. Um, the Monty Python crew themselves even said it's not blasphemy, it's heresy. Because we are speaking out against a religion and, and doing that. But even they were, no, this is not blasphemy, this is not what we're doing. But we but we can acknowledge that what we are doing, yes, is problematic in those senses. And and even that interview, there's a bit at the end where the guy says, uh, the, the journalist who's speaking against the film, he talks about if you're watching this and saying that what Jesus went through was the same as what everyone else went through. You're missing a fundamental aspect of the story. You're missing the spirituality of it. And you're missing what it was happening in him sacrificing himself for us. And yet there is a whole area there to be explored that they don't touch on in this. Which is why it is arguably fairly light in what it's doing. It's just making some of the obvious jokes about these things. Such as speech impediments and mistaken identities. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But yeah, blasphemy, I, I don't agree with personally. If you hadn't gathered. <laughs> well, I mean, I am with you on that one. Hmm. At Chipper Allen said that the first time he saw it was in college with comparative religion buddies. I love this movie. Christ divinity is stressed as the most important part of him, but he was human. Humans are absurd. Humans are funny. This movie is a reminder that those qualities can also be divine. And that was also followed up by at Sarah E. Lawton, who said it's political com political as much as religious commentary, or the convergence between them. And I agree with Alan that the point is about humanity and humour and the absurd being holy. Ultimately, the point is a surprisingly gentle and not blasphemous one. I like that phrase, surprisingly gentle. <laughs> I think that's a good descriptor, just because, I mean, like we've been saying, the expectation was for this movie to be one thing, and then it, it ends up being something different. Mm. And finally, at Zinc Stoat said that it's definitely a classic. I remember the Not the Nine O'Clock News parody sketch, which he's linked to. I was only dimly aware of Python at the time. One of my favourite bits is the Latin graffiti lecture, clearly inspired by the team's time at school. Now, the sketch he links to is a uh, TV comedy 
sketch show that uh, followed Monty Python um, called Not the Nine O'Clock News. They did a sketch lampooning the uh, chat show appearance where a priest had made a film about Jesus Christ, which a Python follower, fanatic, whatever, had um, taken as being uh, talking against our Lord John Cleese. <laughs> it, it, it's it's funny because it's essentially exactly the same arguments they made, but just completely reversed, which again is, is not the most complicated of comedy, but it is quite funny. It does show some of the absurdity of the, the arguments being thrown. They say, oh, how can you how can you say Jesus Christ isn't supposed to be John Cleese? He's got the same initials. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's quite good and worth All watching. Right. And yes, the bit of the Latin graffiti. I used to graffiti Romani A and Domus into like homework diaries and stuff at school. Of course you did. It's just a great phrase. Because <laughs> you go from the... That is very ridiculous, but also very funny. The way he's being threatened, the way he has to write it out a hundred times. And you go through mm-hmm. to, like I was saying, all the different levels of comedy, the satire of him giving this sermon to his followers and saying, you should sort it out for yourselves, you should think about what you want to do and, and figure it out, and them chanting back. You're all individuals! Yes, we're all individuals! It's doing a lot of work right. on a lot of levels. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. the film for that. Okay. Mandy, did you have any favourite things in this? I really, really like the song. At the end. Yes. Yes. Is there more than one song in this? Uh, there's the opening song. Brian, oh, the man they call Brian. Yeah. No, not that song. <laughs> okay. The the song at the end. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, don't grumble. Give a whistle. This'll help things turn out for the best. I... Always look on the bright side of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great song. It, yeah. That, that I mean, honestly, that and I mean, we we covered the Latin graffiti. That was that was pretty good. Um, the rest of it was not great for me. So. The the song, it, like I was saying, this was the establishment against this film. This is going to be a silly little film and no one's going to remember it. Always Look on the Bright Side of Life closes out every British thing ever now. I've I've sung it at <laughs> Spamalot. So, so this is the curtain call at Spamalot. They get the lyrics down and you sing along with them. It was played at the end of the 2012 London Olympics. Um, Eric Idle recorded a video of himself talking and then playing this for Terry Pratchett's memorial. At the Barbican, so we ended up at this memorial singing this song. Um, yeah, it's used everywhere. It's so interesting because I I had never heard the song until this year when we started singing it for Sunday Assembly. Mm. And it's a I it's a good like song it now. Yeah, it is a good song. It's it, that's really the only way to put it. It's a good song, mm. and it's not crude. It's not vulgar. It's not having a go at anyone. It's just a nice song. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I I can kind of see the complaints about you're saying the crucifixion is actually a jolly holiday sing along moment. Well, no, they're not. That's the thing of the comedy. That's why it's funny because it's against each other. But right, I I do like the 
um, the the speech impediments for Pontius Pilate, because uh, normally you do that and it's just the speech impediment itself is supposed to be funny, but they then double down with him trying to pronounce things and being made to pronounce things that are making people laugh. They they actually make it the the joke in and of itself, other than just it's a character quirk that we're meant to laugh at. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it for that level. Roger. Yeah, exactly. Roderick. No, Rudolph the Wet-Nosed Reindeers. No, Spencer Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> but particularly when he's got the extras and they're all trying not to laugh at his friend's name. What about you? Do you find it visible? When I say the name... Dickus. Dickus. And the extras were apparently told to just stand there and you are not allowed to laugh, just be guards. And the fact he is almost pressing his face against them saying this stuff and they're trying not to laugh. And you can see Michael Palin trying not to laugh at this thing. And the fact that's the take that made it into the film, that's the best take they got of that moment. (laughs) (laughs) I would not have been able to not laugh if I had actually been there in person. Yeah. It's so well done. (laughs) And it always catches me by surprise, the full frontal nudity. Brian waking up in the morning, throwing the shutter open, and there being this crowd of 2,000 outside. And you, you get a full shot of him in his naked glory. Yes, you do. I feel like given how comfortable we are with female nudity on film, male nudity should not be surprising in 2017, but it still is. Well, and it's it's also very rare in 2017 for full male frontal nudity, well, exactly. unless it's Game of Thrones. And so for this to have been, you know, 30, 40 years ago, mm. it is definitely surprising. I was surprised by the amount of nudity they showed for Judith. And yes. then they followed that up with Brian's full frontal nudity. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't expect to see that in this movie. Yeah, because with her, it's really funny because she's got her long hair covering her breast. But yet you can mm-hmm. see the rest of her. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It was It's surprising. A thing I didn't realize until reading up on this film is she's meant to be Judith Iscariot. See, that's what I thought. Like, it, it took me until the end of the movie to figure out that they were calling her Judith and not Judas. Mm. So at first, I honestly thought it was just a woman actress playing Judas Iscariot. And then they slept together, and I was like, okay, no, she's actually supposed to be a woman. And then I realized they were calling her Judith. Yeah. And and, and so that that's interesting, because my first instinct when they introduced her was to think that was Judas Iscariot. Yeah, I, I, I think I just never put it together. And then it just became this film, so I never thought about it. The the actress who played her went on to become mayor of Aberystwyth, which is a Welsh town. And she is Welsh herself. Um, and she, uh, I think, found out the film was still banned when she was mayor. So she got it unbanned and then invited some of the uh, Pythons along to watch it with them as well. They had a big event for it. Oh, that's lovely. Mm, bringing good into the world. <laughs> Is there anything else that we need to discuss about Monty Python's Life of Brian? No, we've watched two out of their four films. No. <laughs> I am not a huge fan of Me- Meaning of Life, their their final film. 
Um, it has two or three good moments, but it's not great across the whole thing. It's a little strange. Um, so what I might do is send you the good moments so you can laugh at them. And their other, arguably their first film was a made-for-TV re-record of their best sketches to help them break America. Okay. So, Mandy, I think we're done with um, Monty Python. Oh, we are so done with Monty Python. <laughs> the, the the team from this have teamed up and done stuff at other times, and they've been in each other's films. So we, we will probably see some of this, you know, a Michael Palin and a, a John Cleese in a film together again. That's fine. Yeah. That's totally fine. I think I just don't understand Monty Python's humor is really what it is. I don't know if I'm just inherently not a funny person, which I don't think is true. But this is just a brand of humor that doesn't work for me. And I I don't know why. Honestly, it just doesn't. Ugh, Americans. (laughs) Apparently so. (laughs) Maybe I just need to be British. Maybe so. Don't at me, guys. (laughs) It was a joke. But also, ugh. (laughs) Oh, you know you still love me anyway. Yeah. It's okay. We want to say thank you to everybody who sent us feedback on The Life of Brian. If you want to send us your thoughts or comments, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at eloquentgushing. You can email us at podcast at eloquentgushing.com, or you can leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash eloquentgushing. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vos. We are now on Spotify as well. You can find all of the Eloquent Gushing shows uh, in one place. If you look us up on Spotify, you'll be able to subscribe and stream new stuff as it comes out. So that's a nice one-stop shop for all you streamers out there. And we are 100% funded by listeners like you through our Patreon page. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, gives access to exclusive content and helps support the network and develop new shows. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to keep up to date with the latest news and announcements using our weekly newsletter. You can subscribe at eloquentgushing.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Parks and Recreation Season 4. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I have a very great friend in Rome called Bigger Stickers. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.